You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the Joan Kenny Professor of Economics Emeritus at Stanford University, whose research work has covered a variety of problems in economic theory and policy. He's written extensively on growth theory, game theory, and the effect of market power on inequality and growth, and he's worked on many policy projects. He also served as a special economic advisor to President Carter's Commission on Pension Policy in 1979. His latest book is titled The Market Power of Technology, Understanding the Second Gilded Age. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Mordecai Kurz. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm, pl- I'm very glad to be th- with you. So firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Um, well, I have my bachelor's degree at Hebrew University of Jerusalem, PhD from Yale, and I've been a professor at Stanford University, uh, economics professor at Stanford University. Uh, since uh, 1969. Um, I've been working on this problem for the last 10 years, and the book, the subject matter of the book, for about 10 years. And that's where we are today. Wow, 10 years. That's that's a long time to, to, to work on the book. Um, can you tell us a bit about how it came about? Well, uh, some we knew very little about inequality uh, during the 20th century. Most of the time, uh, as I recall from the time that I was a student, we always believed that the distribution of income is pretty much fixed. Uh, But data that came out at the end of the 20th century began to show that there is a really change in income distribution and functional distribution as well. Functional distribution means income distribution between labor and capital and profits. And uh, as this became a central problem for discussion, I became more and more interested in it. Okay, so I I did actually want to start with this premise um, about economic inequality. So you write in the introduction that, quote, since the 1980s, the United States has regressed to a level of economic inequality not seen since the Gilded Age in the late 19th century. So I I did want to challenge you a little bit on this premise. So a a recent analysis from Senator Graham, uh, several other BLS economists as well, just this this December adjusted the census data from which we get our our income inequality uh, numbers, um, and and they adjusted it for non-cash transfer payments like food stamps and also taxes paid, which the data currently ignores. And, And they showed that income inequality in the U.S. has actually declined since the 1960s. So uh, since the census uh, started keeping track, I think it was in the 1940s of um, income, uh, when they set that formula, uh, th- there were very few uh, non-cash transfer payments, and those obviously have ballooned into the trillions of dollars. Tax revenue obviously today is a lot greater. And so the, the census data that where, where we get our inequality numbers don't currently account for that. Um, and, and so once you, once you actually factor all those things in, um, it seems that income inequality in the U.S. is falling, not rising. Uh, and, and nowhere near as stark as it might seem. Um, so I, I'd like to start by asking you to sort of justify this premise. Uh, how how can we really say that uh, income inequality is rising? I have been working on functional distribution of income, and based I did not do any work on personal distribution of income 
I relied mostly on the work that Saez and Piketty have published in the Q- uh, Quartal Journal of Economics in 2003, and their, their data is based on uh, income tax. Uh, my own analysis is very simple. In 1980, the proportion of income created in the private sector, uh, the corporate sector, was about income, of, I'm sorry, the proportion of income that went to profits. Profits means mar- market, profits based on market power. I'm, I'm dividing income into three components, uh, monopoly profits, ordinary profits, in uh, labor. Profits for, mar- for market power was about 6% in, two th- in the 19, uh, 1980s. In, in 2017, which is the last day that I report in the book, it was 25%. And the, if you look at the total, something else, which is another measure which I use, which is uh, monopoly wealth, which is the total wealth created by market power, uh, it was pr- practically zero in 2000, in 1980, and it, it rose to about 75% of the value of all stocks in the United States, and it was an, an increase of about $25 trillion. Now, this is wealth, which is created by mar- market power, and this market power is based on technology, and, and those people who receive that income people who own technology in some sense. And therefore, the distribution of income that I look at is the functional distribution, and that shows dramatic increase in inequality. So, I mean, even if even if we go by that premise that inequality, um, at least by the, the market power statistics that you use, um, are increasing dramatically, um, can you tell us a bit about why that might be a problem? Well, because it is based on it is based on 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 monopoly power. It is based on the idea that somebody. Okay, let's start again. Let's not. I, I have. I'm. I'll start again by reminding you that the Adam Smith or Milton Friedman and econ, economic situation that we teach in 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 graduate school has firms being all equal. Everybody has equal opportunity. At the moment, one firm innovates something, that firm has an advantage. It has an advantage and therefore it has a monopoly power. Now, at that moment, the economy, and and if this happens on a large scale, that means that all industries are not really competitive. They are based on the market power that they gain from the technological advantage they have. Now, this 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 sword has two sides. Uh, one side is development and growth and productivity, but the other side is the fact that most of the income that comes out of that goes to very few people. And moreover, because they are using monopoly power, the economic anal- the, the allocation is inefficient. The growth rate is less than its potential. Income level is less than potential because monopolies tend to produce less than potential. They invest less potential, and therefore the economy as a whole is an inefficient economy. And that, I believe, is is something that to be concerned with. Okay, so I think there's there's really two parts to that. One is the the uh, negative effects of the inequality, and the other is the 
the negative impacts to the economy of um, having, say, monopolies. So, you know, reduced innovation, reduced incentive to deliver, say, better goods and services, that kind of thing. Um, so so let's go through those um, one by one, starting with the, the, the monopolies. So you, you talk about how some firms... Uh, they they innovate technology, they own that technology, and that gives them somehow gives them an, a, a monopoly. So I, I'm not sure I totally understand that premise. Um, so for example, well, I, yeah, uh, but go ahead. I just, I just describe the situation. If you think about an economy, a market in which all firms are the same, they all the same technology, and they're all the same. But then suddenly one company is able to produce a commodity, that same product which the industry produces, and it is much better. Obviously, the consumers would like to buy that product. But that company at that moment becomes a monopolist. Now, I have no problem with the fact that they're, they're innovating, and I, I want them to innovate, and I want them to compensate them. The problem is, is that, the, the, that once you have a monopoly power, you begin to abuse it because you develop all kinds of methods to make that monopoly power entrenched and become, becomes durable. And you start using tech, uh, uh, tricks and, 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 and um, strategies to uh, entrench your power on a, on a permanent basis. And therefore, as the economy, as, as innovations spread across the economy, the entire economy is not a competitive economy any, any longer. It is a, is a monopoly-based and oligopoly-based uh, economy. And it has all the disadvantages I just outlined. Well, I mean, I, I I I can see where you're coming from, but I think just looking through the past couple of decades, we can see several cases where you know one firm, for example, MySpace, dominated the social media space, uh, and then one day Facebook comes along and they create something better, and now Facebook has has most of the market share. Uh, same thing, you know, Canon dominated cameras, and then Apple creates the iPhone, and all of a sudden they have a superior innovation, and and now Apple dominates the the space for cameras, and and Canon, you know, heart is a shell of what it once was. So, I mean, sure, a company might have, say, a temp temporary monopoly, but isn't that still a meritocracy? As in, they, they only have their monopoly insofar as they're producing the best good or service. And then as soon as someone else comes along and they do it better, then the consumers go to them. And that's just sort of the, the nature of the market. The consumers just go to whoever is delivering the best product for the best price and, until someone co else comes along with their new disruption. But you're missing the whole implication of all that. While this is happening, because they have monopoly power, Wages are being suppressed. Workers are receiving less the income than they deserve. Uh, retirees are getting lower interest rate on their investments because ordinary income of capital income is reduced, is lowered. And the economy is producing inefficiently. And few, very few people get very, very wealthy. Um, and that has other implications, political implications. But more onward, the, the part of the, what you said is really uh, 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 mistaken because you have assumed that somebody will show up and compete. Uh, the evidence shows, and I've studied this very, very carefully, there are hundreds of papers written on the question whether monopolists can protect their position, whether competition will in fact remove that monopoly. And the answer is no. It's purely a myth that somebody else will come up and do something better. Yeah, you can tell individual stories. But in fact, what happens is that once a monopoly power is established, it becomes a durable monopoly, and it, 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 it actually it, it maintains itself for a very long time. And now it is true that it's, each monopoly is within a certain paradigm. 
like a steam engine creates a paradigm, te technological paradigm. Electricity creates a technological paradigm, or the internet. So once you have one of, one of these great discoveries, like uh, the like electricity, for example, everything changes. Then everything opens up, and everybody is competing. But within that paradigm, within the, the technology of electricity, some monopolies get established, and they stay there for a very long time. Some of them over a hundred years. Therefore, the idea that competition will remove it is not true. It's completely false. Okay. Um, so, okay, let's let's assume then there's a company that come in with a new technology um, because they they are uh, they get to a monopoly position. They then use um, their their say market power to dominate the competition. They uh, work against their smaller competitors, whatnot. Isn't there uh, already wait, wait, sufficient wait, wait. antitrust? And, and, and then in the meantime, labor income reduces and, and, and workers are receiving less income than they deserve. They work and they work harder. And ordinary people who have only capital receive less for their money and the economy is inefficient. And some people get poor because they don't, because somebody made, made them poor. I mean, you're forgetting all the other implications that I've talked about. But what about then the benefits of the innovation that they bring? So I recognize it. Absolutely. The whole point is we want to maintain a society in which the innovations are rewarded, but they don't have to be rewarded with, a, with, a, with, a, with, a, with, with owning a, such a large fraction of GNP. And there's no need. I mean, now, now we're entering already way, way into the, in the policy, policy question. The policy question is we want to maintain an innovation and we are willing, I'm willing even to maintain the patent law. I don't even, I'm not against the patent law. But what I want is the timing of monopoly power that companies have to be much shorter. It doesn't have to last 100 years. It can last 20 years for the patent and that's it. What we want is to shorten the time at which monopoly power is given for uh, uh, innovations. And therefore, we want to outlaw many strategies which are used uh, to abuse the, the, the patent laws and other things. So not, now, this is a whole other discussion moving us into a different direction. Yeah, so I, I think there's a, a sort of a trade-off then. So if you decrease the incentive to innovate, then we one one would expect that there might be less innovation, but at the same time, uh, more frequent disruptions could mean, uh, you know, the economy, uh, for example, functions at a more efficient point. And, and so, do you think that trade off then? Um, wh where do you think then that that trade off could be drawn from a policy standpoint, where we can? Well, if you, we, if you read can, carefully my chapter ten, I provide a complete analysis of optimal taxation that takes into account the incentive to innovate uh, based on the data that we have. And I show that up to 50% of taxation, income tax of, of monopoly profits, up to 50% will not have any effect on innovations. In fact, there's a history, uh, there's historical evidence for it because between 1930 and 1980, the marginal income tax was high, much higher than it is today. It was 94% in, in 1942, and it was about 70% between, uh, you know, it, it went up and down, but up to 1980, it was more than 70%. And innovations were very at a very high pace. Okay, that 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 premise then uh, again that that baffles. It's not me. a premise. I mean, this is an analysis. I'm sorry. This is not a premise. 
in chapter 10, I provide a complete model and formulation with, with, with a rigorous analysis of the optimal taxation question. Sure. Uh, that analysis, uh, I think, naturally, uh, you know, without without having gone through in depth uh, that analysis, I think just on the surface, it, it seems baffling that we could tax profits from innovation at 50%. We could take half of the profits that someone makes from innovating, literally cut half of the upside and still not see a, a decrease in, in innovation. Is Could, could you perhaps get uh, a, a little bit deeper into that? No, but you, you, you're, you're misstating what I'm saying. When an innovate, when a company innovates, it, it does two things. It has an invention and it has capital investment. So if there's $10 billion capital investment, then there's normal return on capital, which I'm not even including. Capital that I'm talking about 50% of, of, of profits, which are made from monopoly profits. So monopoly profits is the profits that you get in above normal profits. So if normal profits in the industry say 12%, if you're making 50% profits, then uh, profits between 12 to 50 is defined as monopoly profits. What I'm saying is 50% tax of monopoly profits will not change the innovations or okay. will affect innovations very little, enough to justify the trade-off. Okay. I'm not talking about taxation of capital itself. Taxation of capital itself is a separate issue that is not doesn't come into discussion here. Of course, of course. So above above normal profits uh, and up to the the profits that they are making, you would define as then uh, being uh, eligible for that fifty percent tax rate, and, and that would be uh, straight away. There would be no no marginal anything on that. There would just be fifty percent of everything above normal profits. This is the tax rate that I, this is the scheme that I looked at. I looked at the uh, scheme of one tax rate, but yeah, you, you can make it progressive. You can, you can actually start it lower and then go up. Uh, this is something that I didn't, I didn't want, I didn't want to complicate it. And this would be across all industries? Yes. Okay. Um, and then what about, uh, but each industry, but each industry will have its own normal profit rate. Yep. Of course. Of course. Which is, uh, which is, which is not part of the discussion. Of course. So then you, you also uh, get into, I think, a couple of other policy solutions as well. Uh, antitrust, uh, you, you mentioned. Um, so what would, what would be your, your proposal from an antitrust standpoint? Well, it's, it comes back to the point that I was talking about earlier. The, the existing antitrust law is useless to deal with the question I'm, I'm addressing. Why? Because antitrust law and Supreme Court decisions view profits from monopoly profits, which are profits of innovators from their monopoly profits, as innocent profits, and therefore they are allowed by law. As a result of that, a company like that, having monopoly power with all the negative implications it has to the economy as a whole, is completely exempt from, from, from uh, antitrust. So antitrust, the purpose of antitrust is to maintain a regulatory environment that will force companies to gain more market power exactly as specified in patent law and no more than that. That means that there are, I'm, I'm proposing to make illegal various policies, various strategies used by corporations, for example, acquiring competitors or suppressing innovations of other companies or 
having many, many uh, corporate updates. For example, technological updates. You've got a monopoly for, you've got a patent for 20 years. You'll, you make an update and you've got another 20 years. So you've got various ways in which you can get the patent to be extended forever. So I'm proposing that many of these strategies will be become illegal and it will be subject to the regulations that will allow every innovator to have a market power for a specified period and no longer than that. In addition to that, I'm proposing a major change in patent law by making a distinction between primary patents and secondary patents. Secondary patents are those that are being observed based on existing patents. Those should be given half the time that primary patents should. Uh, but, you know, I have three chapters on policies, and I can now speak about it for the next two hours. Uh, and that's as far as we can go at, at this moment, you know. <laughs> uh, let me stop right here. Yeah, so I think we can we can all assume, um, you know, that uh, monopolies stifle competition. They aren't good for consumers, but you know, we we assume that customers will will naturally gravitate to to companies that that deliver the best goods and services. So, in in other words, there's nothing uh, currently that's that's stopping someone else from coming in, doing it better, et cetera. Um, but by that token, the 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 most innovative firms will automatically stay the most profitable, right? So, um, you know, what what if after these the, these antitrust changes, um, you know, the, the, a firm continues to make monopoly profits uh, because they, they remain the best, even if we tax 50% of, of those uh, profits above normal profits um, and, and a company retains monopoly power then. Um, is, that, is that fine then? Yes. Okay. As, long as, they, as, long as, as long as their monopoly profits and monopoly power is maintained according in accordance with the exact a uh, patent law that it was issued to begin with. And you have to read it a little bit more complex because there, there are many, many strategies which are used today which enable companies to, for example, to buy patents of other companies or acquire other companies. So I'm putting severe restrictions on the ability of corporations to acquire other companies because the most important way in which companies have built up their monopoly power is by aggregating lots of technologies. I mean, I, I have a list of... Uh, uh, I looked at say, the, the number of acquisitions made by, say, five, six of the leading companies, and, and it's in the thousands. These are people, these companies are acquiring enormous amount of technology, which they don't produce themselves. Um, in fact, many, many of the uh, uh, startups in Silicon Valley are made with the intent of being acquired. So little companies in America are becoming like the laboratories for the big companies to extend their monopoly power even longer. But it's not research that they do themselves. So as long as they maintain monopoly power for the duration that's specified in patent law and after the form of the patent law, I have no problem at all. I think, as as say you know, uh, uh, some, someone from a neoclassical background, um, I, I'm sort of very skeptical of uh, you know, as, as as skeptical as we can be of these corporations. I, I I would be even more skeptical of say the the impacts of of handing over that money to the government instead. So obviously, if we take away fifty percent of the monopoly profits, that's money that there's that's that's less money for them to reinvest into R and D, less money for them to you know. 
uh, innovate further, uh, or, or you know, really to to invest in in any other area. And I, I mean, I, I would be skeptical that the government would do a more efficient job of using that money than that company. Uh, how, however poorly you think that company may then use it. So, uh, does does it not uh, scare you to 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 think of the the big government increase that that would that would fuel? And and do you think that you know putting that money into tax revenue would be a more efficient way of, of using those resources? I think the statement that the government is not the solution, that government is the problem, is one of the greatest fallacies in American policy, in American politics. The government has had enormous success in promoting R&D that private corporations have not. Most of the technology in Apple is financed by government research. Government has been extremely important in the promotion and development of research in the development of Silicon Valley couldn't have happened without government. So the the problem is it's a purely ideological statement that the government is something to be weary of. On the contrary, we need government to be a more... um, We need to support the government more and not be hostile to the government. And then we will have a better government. So... Is, is is tax revenue then really the what's it called the the, the say, solution to that? Um, so w- once we take say these fifty percent of monopoly profits, we hand them over to the government. Um, obviously, we take some money out of uh, investment from the hands of, for, from private hands, and, and we hand it over to the government. Do you think uh, on the whole, the government you 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 would say you would trust the government uh, more of doing a better job um, of using those resources than the, the monopolies would? Yes. Okay, and 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 why? I mean, can can you weigh those two up? You know, leaving them in private hands. I have, I have already said. To, I've already explained, uh, Adi. <laughs> we we have a different view of the world. In my world, government is is here to help us. Government here is to every regulation, every regulation that exists on the books, if written with the spirit of willingness to make the world better is a regulation which corrects for market pa- failure. Market failure, all regulations are designed to be those kind of market corrections where the market fails. When we have a regulation on the quality of uh, food, is because otherwise our food will be contaminated. If we have a regulation on the quality of medicines, is in order to make sure that we're not being sold snake oil as a as a remedy for for cancer. Therefore, a enlightened government is something that serves our purpose and makes our life better and make market back work better. In fact, capitalism without market without government will become a hostile environment. And therefore, I have to trust the government because the government is you and I together. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I totally understand your, your worldview. Then, if, if we view this, the, the government through that lens, um, don't, don't you think though that there are uh, political motivations that you know politicians have that could drive those decisions in, in, in ways that aren't necessarily, you know, uh, economically optimal? I have to believe in democracy, and I believe in democracy, and I believe that democracy can function better if it finds ways of weeding out those anti-democratic forces 
that make government fail sometimes. Obviously, uh, politicians, the, the ones creating the, this legislation, they have an incentive that their incentive is, is, you know, to get reelected, to do what makes their constituents happiest and what makes their constituents happiest. I think we see this all over the place with, you know, be, uh, politicians from different sides of the aisle proposing completely opposite policies. It's not necessarily that they think those will be the most economically efficient. It's what they think will most appeal to their base and what will get them voted into office. So do you think then that those conflicting motivations politically could cause us to to say go in a direction with the the way these policies are done, how how well they're implemented, that might not you know lead to say the desired outcomes that we could achieve in a utopian world um, without these these you know corrupt political motivations. Well, uh, government can fail, but I think that the American government has an enormously successful record in terms of research and development. American government has had enormous impact on the on the on the, on the, on on the development in many industries, including uh, uh, um, uh, electric cars. Although um, uh, entrepreneurs who are claiming themselves to be very wise uh, forget how much money they they received from the government, uh, so that uh, Tesla is uh, is an extremely good example of government success not only private success, but also government success. And finally, you know, I spend my life thinking how to make the world better. And I think there is, this is our job, that's my job as an intellectual, as a professor, as a, as a scholar. And I'm not about to, to yield it, to, to yield that belief to people who are anti-democratic and at this time uh, demonstrate ill will. Sure, under the atmosphere that we have today, there are so many po politicians that have exhibited so much ill will that it's difficult to believe that one can come come and do something better with that. But there was time at which America worked well, and I think that it should be able to do it again. So the answer okay. to your question is yes. Okay, uh, optimistic. I I like it, Dr. Kurz. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, those those are all the questions that I have for you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.